0: Well, good morning everybody. Thank you for joining us on Trinity Sunday to talk about the Trinity. (laughs) Um, Before we do that, I want to talk about summer reading lists, so I have a few books. I just bought these on Amazon Prime, and if you're interested, I, I have them here today. I would tell you you're here to talk about them together or not, these are fine summer reading books. I just want to talk to you about each one really, really briefly. This uh, book, Barking to the Choir, is not a sequel because they don't do sequels, but Tattoos on the Heart by Greg Boyle is a great book. In fact, if you want an extra one beyond these three, really recommend it. This, this book is chock full of stories, frankly, from rehabilitated gang members. Greg Boyle is in Los Angeles. He's the founder of Homeboy Industries, if you've heard of it. They take, um, um, basically, gang-related ex-cons and do meaningful rehabilitation. I mean, uh, really have great results with things like recidivism, people graduating high school, people having a life after being incarcerated in a gang. He's a Jesuit priest, uh, which means he's somehow radically affirmative. So I've got this this book. We're going to read this one in June, and there's a schedule in your bulletin about how we're going to talk about it. You can buy any of these books wherever you want to, but this one's $18 if you want a copy. This one's 18 you can write a check to St. Thomas or give me cash if you want to, because we, we bought them, if that makes sense, because I know there's some people who don't do Amazon. I've got one left of this. You can buy it, it's fine. You don't have to hate me, you can buy it. Just give me some money. <laughs> <laughs> this next, you can't, this next book is the July read. Uh, I wanna warn you in advance, this is a tough book to read. I mean, it's extremely challenging, which is why I think it's really worth us reading and talking about. This is by, frankly, a church guy in Atlanta that moved into the, the equivalent of Atlanta's Fifth Ward. And um, what he learned there about the way we do charity, and, and frankly, what he says is that a lot of ways that we do charity as churches does more harm than good. So t- I'm just warning you, it's tough. And you may not want to read it because you may say, I don't want to know that. Think <laughs> I think you should. I think you should because it's it's tough. Uh, that's the July read. I think this one I spent twelve dollars on. I don't mean to have a book fair. I'm just trying to make this accessible for you. And then our August read is Twelve Steps to a Compassionate Life by Karen Armstrong. I actually read this one several years ago and found it really really helpful because you know compassion is like a buzzword. Be compassionate, but um, this book is is practical in the sense of what practices can you do to cultivate more compassion, super helpful. Um, Karen Armstrong writes a lot of books, and uh, this one's great, and I think this one's also <coughs> $12. Uh, these two are paperbacks. This one's so new, you can't have it in paperback, Is the problem, you know, like it really just came out a week ago. A- this one's 18, 18, deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I hope I hope you enjoy reading these. Or uh, again, whether you're here for discussions or not, I hope you enjoy uh, reading these books as part of your your summer reading. Obviously, I'm I'm joining the discipline, and again, the chapters we'll be talking about are there. We'll have some guiding questions each week, and of course, you'll also have some of your own thoughts and responses. Uh, particularly when you read, barking to the choir. Wow, it's really it's just really fine. It's really fine. Okay, so that brings us now, then, to talking about the Trinity. Today is Trinity Sunday. And, um, you know, just to give you a little bit of a history of this, you probably already know, uh, I put this Dorothy Sayers quote in there. Dorothy Sayers is an English theologian who was writing kind of in the 1960s, and she said, well, listen, you got the Father incomprehensible, you got the Son incomprehensible, the whole dang thing, Incomprehensible, right, and we have this strange trajectory that back at the end of the 1700s, one of the probably the most influential Protestant theologian of the 1700s maybe you 've heard of him or not, Friedrich schleiermacher he 's a German systematic theologian that means veil maker in case you were an Schleier is, a, is like a veil um, he, in his systematic theology put the Trinity in the appendix. <laughs> That was how important he thought the Trinity was. Um, So we'll do a little bit of an appendectomy, if that's okay, and and bring this out to talk about. Um, The Trinity, we mentioned this a little bit uh, last week, has been this really difficult thing for us in Christian tradition, particularly when we're talking to our Jewish brothers and sisters and our Islamic brothers and sisters. I mean, just think through that, right? Um, Judaism and uh, Islam, of course, radical monotheists. I'm not sure which one is more monotheistic than the other, probably Islam, to be honest with you. Um, so as Christianity developed and is in contact with our roots, both our forebears in Judaism and um, sort of spawn of Christianity and Judaism-Islam, this has been a really tough doctrine for us because, frankly, Christians get accused of polytheism. What do you mean there's three personalities, and in general, that sounds a lot like schizophrenia, right? So this is a tough, this is a tough bit, and, and we decided, we, meaning the Council of Nicaea, decided, in Trinitarian doctrine back in 325. So the Council of Nicaea met in 321 and came up with its creed in 325, and then added the language we talked about last week when we were discussing the Holy Spirit in 381 at the Council of Chalcedon. So remember that the original Nicene Creed ended with the phrase, and the Holy Spirit, period. There was no, the Lord, the giver of life, with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified, proceeds from the Father and the Son, there was none of that, just we believe in the Holy Spirit, done. In 381, so that's 66 years later, no, I did that wrong, 56 years later, that's when we got the rest of what we say now about the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, proceeds from the Father. That little phrase, and the Son, came 700 years later, Right, was not original to the Nicaean Creed or the Chalcedonian Revision. And, and that was when we really got the phrase uh, at Nicaea that God is no more one than God is three. Of course, that's paradoxical. right? And there's no reconciling that God is one and God is three. I, I used to teach at a fundamentalist Christian school and um. Every year, kids had to take a religion class. Of course, in their in their freshman year, they took Old Testament. That's what we called it. And in their sophomore year, they took New Testament. In their junior year, they took apologetics. And in their senior year, they took worldviews. Worldviews. And um, the apologetics teacher... That, oh, the Trinity makes a lot of sense mathematically. It's one times one times one equals one. Now, let me tell you, he did not have a math degree. (laughs) And I do. And frankly, I think that's ridiculous. So, there, I said it. (laughs) And I'm the one that got fired, not him, so now you know why. Okay. (laughs) Um, Anyway, it's just, it's sort of not, it's sort of not. Helpful. So, quite honestly, what happened, we talked about this last week, is that the, tr- the idea of a trinity came from lay people doing a practice and then theologians theologized it. I told you the same as with the rosary, right? Christians saw Muslims using the bead string to count the 99 names of Allah and they thought, I want a bead string. <laughs> so they made up the rosary. They didn't make it up, they adapted it, right? So what happened is, from a, a, I mean, the long, long tradition is when people got baptized in the early church, they did it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then theologians had to figure out what that was. <laughs> What's the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Ah, oh, it's the Trinity. That's what it is. Now, my pad disappeared, but I'm, I'm able to show you in a, in a diagram sort of the earliest... Um, depiction of this, and and I do talk about this in the sermon, but not with a diagram. So, I'm hoping that the diagram I draw will be of some help to. I'm just going to draw it on a piece of paper, or actually, probably this paper towel, <laughs> because that's what I have. And you'll get it. It's it's simply a Venn diagram, and Augustine. Um, did a lot of writing on it. So Augustine, he's the bishop of Hippo. He, he writes during the fall of Rome when it's sacked by the vandals. And Augustine um, is the one who puts the Latin writing around this Venn diagram that has been really critical in our understanding of the Trinity. So, so here it is, this very simple Venn diagram. It is not a toxic waste symbol. That looks very different. And you see, each circle is a personality of the Trinity, each one, Father, Son, Spirit. And then what you'll notice then, and this, this is when you hear the word Godhead, I say this in the sermon too, I know, um, there's the Godhead, do you see it? And then what about these other bits? Well, normally when you see the Trinitarian symbol, they take the circle out and they just show you those overlaps. But that's not good thinking. I want you to know that's actually not good thinking. These overlaps are what the Father and the Spirit have in common that the Son does not have in common with them. Does that make sense what I'm saying? This is a Venn diagram that you learned about when you were in the ninth or uh, the 10th grade. That's when you started using these things. I probably should have brought this into church, except it would just make your eyes glaze over even more. You see, each circle is an entity of the Trinity. So this is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. They're their own people. (laughs) And this is what the Father and Son have in common. But please notice, this isn't the Father. This is what the Father and Son have in common that the Spirit doesn't. This is what the Spirit and the Father have in common that the son does not have in common with them. So again, when you see this picture as representing the Trinity, that one, is not a good picture because it's showing you father and son, but not the spirit. Son and father, no, no, son and spirit, but not father. You get what I'm saying? The diagram is really helpful because what it says, it takes this, and this probably makes it more confusing, is that the Father has an identity totally different from the Son and the Spirit. There are lots of things about God the Father that, frankly, the Spirit and the Son don't have. That's kind of radical theological thinking, isn't it? It takes very seriously the the idea, right, that God is three and that God is one. Now, don't get caught up on area. Don't think, oh, the oneness of God is much smaller than the threeness of God. I could draw a better diagram where the areas were equal. Right? (laughs) Actually, I don't know if I could draw that diagram, but it's conceivable one could do that. That really would be the appropriate diagram, is that the area of the Godhead is uh, congruent to the area of each personality. That was the decision in 325, frankly, and it was diagrammatic. And the reason that Augustine said the Father is incomprehensible, the Son is incomprehensible, the Spirit incomprehensible, is that what he's saying is these realities about God's fundamental identity cannot be understood by humanity because they're transcendent. So we have some understanding of God. It's the tip of the iceberg. Does that make sense? It's sort of like this, this game we play where there's, there's like polymaths who can memorize 300 digits of pi. And that's really impressive, but of course it's nothing, because pi is infinite. So if you memorized a billion digits of pi, you don't know anything. <laughs> do do you, you know what I'm saying? Now never mind the fact that if you know four digits of pi, your calculations are about just as good as if you know a thousand digits. But never mind that. <laughs> but you understand what I mean about infinity. No matter how long your line segment is, it's a segment. So no matter how much about God we know, we know nothing. Incomprehensible. It's actually a pretty, pretty mathematical idea, right? Pretty mathematical. Incomprehensible, that's the idea, right? A um, good theologian akin to Friedrich Schleiermacher in the 1700s said, God is transcendent, our words are not. Right? Our words are not transcendent. Our words convey meaning. So by definition, anytime we do theology, we're blaspheming because we're limiting God with our words. Well, that's an interesting idea, Right? Incomprehensible. So that's the decision about the Trinity. Now, people have moved away from it, I think. We say it's important, but how we live into it is really hard, I think because we don't understand what all this incomprehensibility does for us about living. I mean, what difference does it make? Is it just a clunky old church doctrine, you know, one of those things you have to memorize or, frankly, is it life-giving and helpful? And, and I'll let you know that some of my favorite theologians are people who have been real playful with this. I don't talk about this in the sermon, so this is good. <laughs> um, this one theologian, he happens to be an Episcopal priest, and, and again, if you want some other summer reading, he he's usually has a really interesting take on things. His name's um, Robert Capon, C-A-P-O-N, and, and he writes this book called The Third Peacock, which is it's really, it's really something. And his understanding of the creation of the world is that one day the Trinity was having a picnic. And there were all kinds of things there, pimento cheese and olives and maybe Bloody Marys. And um, they were having a really good time and they started the food fight because they were throwing olives at each other. And then all of a sudden, one of them had an idea, which was, how about we make the world? (laughs) In the middle of a food fight, they had this idea, let's make the world. And ultimately, what he goes on to say is um, really different from what I grew up in. See, I grew up that God is one, and maybe you've heard this before, maybe not explicitly. God makes the world because God's lonely. Have you ever heard that before? Anybody? I'm so grateful to hear that people do not have the theological baggage that I have. You know, it's nice to know there's healthy Christian people in the world. Because I'm not one of them, right? Because if God makes us to be company, that means God's needy, you know? Like, God's not needy. And besides, what kind of company are we? Like, we, you know, we... Well, I don't know. I mean, I think God made us out of clay because God intended us to die, you know, and we're going to do that. That Death isn't anything bad. We're just going to die, you know. (laughs) It's not the end, but our little body is going to die. By the way, it's those days where I'm like, thank God. Thank God! Thank God! There's days when I think, "Thank God, I'm going to die one day," because like my knee hurts and my hip hurts and I can't remember what day of the week it is. You, you, you know those days, <laughs> and maybe there'll be something more than that, right? That's sort of the deal. Um, so so I you know to think that God made us um, because God was lonely. That was one way. Another thing I heard was that God made us so that we would worship God. Have you heard that before? God made us. To worship God. Anybody heard that? Just two. So you've heard lonely. This other thing is almost even worse than being lonely. It's sort of like God made us to be cheerleaders, because God needs like a cheerleader. It it it's like that's a middle school God. You know what I mean? Like in the seventh grade, that's what you needed. (laughs) Is is. People to like say good hair, you know, good hair. Hey, unique shirt. You are unique. That's, that's this kind of thing we needed in middle school. Surely God does not need that. So, what's the utility of the Trinity? Uh, and and this I think is really mystical. Is this idea that the reason that we are here, frankly, is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit loved each other so much that their love poured over, and we're pictures of that. Now, this doesn't always work, so I didn't want to be prescriptive here. But I will tell you, at least in my relationship, part of the reason I loved my daughter when she was a baby and spitting up and crying is because she was an outward and visible representation of the love I had for my wife. I did not need my daughter to worship me or because I was lonely. My daughter is a picture of the love that I had and have for my wife. It doesn't always work like that. It doesn't. And I don't want to be silly about that. But, but I do think that's an interesting way to think about creation. So, so why did the world come to be? Because the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit overflowed and made a picture. And every time God looks at us, God sees the love God has for God. It's insightful to think about why it is God, I I don't know, it's not the answer. It's just a way of thinking, right? Again, we love little babies when they're really not lovable. Let's just be honest, you know. Like throwing up is not cute, and a, a dirty diaper is not cute or sweet it's sweet to take care of those things because who that child represents, right? Hope, the future, and our past. All of those things. And maybe that's insight into God's love for us. I don't know. I find that very, very hopeful. You know, there's another, there's an African proverb that says, God created human beings because God thought we might enjoy it. (laughs) Now, that's really wonderful, isn't it? It's really wonderful. And 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 that's some thought into Trinitarian theology, right? Why would God think we would enjoy it? Because God enjoys being and being with one another. And, and you know, I think the great thing about the Trinity is it says that communities are not just a nice idea. God is community. That's God's character. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all different and they're one. And God is unity and difference. And that's why community is so important. It's not a nice idea. It's God. So in that sense, right, being in community is sacramental. When we live in a community, we are participating in God's very character. I have been to Eucharist that was not sacramental. As in, not everybody was included. Or I wasn't included, right? So that can go either way. I have been in communities where some people were included and other people were put up with. Not sacramental. You, 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 you see what I mean? These things work when they flow from God, and inclusion is not at anybody's expense. I mean, imagine this life that we lived in middle school, frankly, where it was all about the father and the son teamed up because the spirit wasn't like them that way. You lived in that before. We, d- we do this all the time at work. Uh, the, the, these especially at work, sometimes we do it in families. Maybe you've heard of this before, it's called triangulation. You've heard of triangulation? It's kind sort of a corporate buzzword, right? And that's where A has a problem with B. So instead of going to B, what they do is they go to C and say, B is a jerk. <laughs> and now A and C are brought together closer by their mutual hatred of B. <laughs> it's called a triangle, right? And what, what C should say is, go talk to B. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> Love you, A, but not because of what you got to do with B. So if God doesn't work like that, then what that means is the Trinity has this really great geometric ideal called equilateral triangle. <laughs> the distance between the Father and the Son is the same between the Son and the Spirit. Right? They don't ever stretch. The triangle never becomes isosceles or, uh, or scalene or any of that business. And, of course, that's not just a neat fact about God. That's the kind of people and communities that God asks us to participate in. I think that's pretty neat, (laughs) myself. Darn hard, don't you think? Darn hard. Really hard at work. Because when you have a supervisor, you don't always feel like you can... Tell them what you're concerned about. Quite honestly, they have more power than you do, and there's a lot at stake. The way I was parented, and honestly, the way I parent, and of course this is true, I have more power than my child does. My parents made it very clear that they had more power than I do. With my teenager, I've tried the tactic of making that clear. It did not work. (laughs) It doesn't mean I don't use it still, but I say, I'm an adult, you're a kid, you know, that just it seems like that would work so well <laughs> and it's just really embittering because that's triangulation, you know, it is. It's, it's hierarchicalization of the relationship. Look, we all know that parents have more power, you know, so to remind you just like just I don't know why, I just feel like that should be so helpful. <laughs> Has that ever worked for you guys? Yeah, no, it doesn't work for Emery already. She's already figured that out. Now listen, it sometimes is expedient, but it doesn't really work. You, <laughs> you know what I mean? It can get me some results. However, the aftermath of those results, good Lord, you know. And, and this is why I think my, like, people like my poor mother, and I see this, she's like, why are you an Episcopalian? What did I do wrong? And of course, the answer is, you did everything right, and that's why and I'm an Episcopalian, and you should come join the conspiracy, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so funny how we perceive that, isn't it? Right, so to think about, again, like, <coughs> how, because how the word community doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. You, you know, I've been in very exclusive communities, and that can't be who the Trinity is. Because the Godhead, the Godhead is about real community and real inclusion. I think sometimes we talk about these theological models and we kind of get been out of shape because, you know, nobody wants to be... Um, the real word is heterodox, which means... Um, blaspheming or heretical. Nobody wants to be that. And since nobody understands the Trinity, you shouldn't really talk about it at all because you might say the wrong thing. And I just think that's silly, right? We've got this doctrine about God that I think is really important for us to push on and bounce on and see if how it would lead us into a bigger life. So once upon a time... I wrote this Trinitarian paper about shame, guilt, and the crucifixion. (laughs) It's gonna sound really heretical, but um, it made me decide I didn't want to be a professor of Old Testament studies anymore, uh, because that was boring, and this was really fun for me. So can I I tell you about this? This is a way I think that we can can push on things a little bit. So we use these words, shame and guilt, almost interchangeably. It's helpful to have a good definition of these psychologically, so in general, (laughs) When we talk about shame psychologically, shame is a feeling that there's a failure in myself. That is, there is something wrong with me. Guilt is a feeling that I've made a bad choice. Sometimes psychologically, guilt means a fear of punishment because we understand when when we're thinking linearly, right? Actions have consequences, I made a bad decision, there will be bad consequences. With those two definitions in mind, guilt's a fear of punishment, shame is a feeling of failure in the self, becomes really important, and Brene Brown supports this work, right, that we never think that shame is an appropriate way to teach people, because it's not. Shame does not work. In fact, um, all the studies, and and Brene Brown cites these very well, say that people who are shame-prone, right, that is, they feel like there's something wrong with them, tend to be people with drug addictions, alcohol abuse, uh, and poor educational and work performance. Because when you feel there's something wrong with you, you can't change your actions, you're bad. You don't have power in yourself to do anything different. And so actually what happens for people who are shame prone is that they blame other people. In this feeling of utter badness, what they say is, it's your fault. You ever known a blamer? I don't mean someone who blames a little bit. It's never their fault. I want to tell you the reason they do that is because it is always their fault. And they can't live that way. Does, does that make sense what I'm saying? The reason they blame is because they can't live with how they really feel, which is that it's always them. Guilt, interestingly enough, people who are guilt prone tend to be perfectionists. <laughs> because um, perfectionism is based on the idea that even though I didn't do it right, I can try better next time. Now I want you to know perfectionism is about as 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 sick as alcoholism. In fact they often go together. Different kinds of addiction go together, spoken from a perfectionist whose mother is a perfectionist. Of course, the deal is perfectionism is socially tolerated. In fact, we almost encourage it because it gets results. Alcohol, use, uh, alcohol is not socially to- tolerated, right? Because it has symptoms we won't accept socially, y- you know? It impairs your performance. So guilt-prone people actually tend to do very well. They're like valedictorians. That's one of those. (laughs) They're like those summa cum laude, magna cum laude people. They're the people who work those 60-hour work weeks at their 20-hour-a-week job, right? So what they do is they work overtime for part-time pay. (laughs) That's how we call that, right? In general, you know when you work in the service world, you work... Okay, is that no yeah there it is you know technology is really a great thing when it works and and I could (laughs) it could be that I'm just one of those daft people that can't seem to get it to work right because I I sure think the battery should last more than an hour and sometimes it doesn't okay so this is okay you can hear this one now I'll be doing karaoke right after this Um, you will want to leave for that Um, I'm just it is a rechargeable battery. I use those, but I want you to know those rechargeable 9 volts, it's a diminishing return every time you charge them, you know? Okay, there we go. Uh, it's just important to be able to sit, it is. Okay, so then I wrote this paper one time about the crucifixion, and it, this is going to sound blasphemous because it probably is, alright? Um. Jesus identified himself with God. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God, right? During his life. And people didn't care for it. <laughs> people found that insulting and blasphemous and heretical. And then came this really interesting moment. Now, again, I'm, I'm just playing with this, okay? And I haven't read my thesis in a long time. But I, I, I'm, I'm playing with this idea about shame and guilt and the Trinity which is that Jesus ends up crucified, and the scriptures say, "Cursed is anyone hanged on a tree. That would apply, right? Jesus is hanged upon a tree. And then he says this really interesting thing. God, why have you forsaken me? Really interesting words, aren't they? I mean, after all, if Jesus is God, how can God forsake God's Self. Seems like a paradox, doesn't it? Although I'd put it to you this way. You ever forsaken yourself? Oh, man, I've spent years doing that. (laughs) So I guess it is really possible. So I had this idea in this class. What do you know? It was called Shame, Guilt, and the Rights of Reconciliation. That was the name of the class. That actually, uh, it it was this interesting thing to think about. Perhaps God the Father was ashamed of God the Son. And then perhaps God, the Holy Spirit, was ashamed that the Spirit couldn't work that out. (laughs) And so Jesus dies alone in the middle of shame. And then resurrection is about restoration of relationship. So initially, God, the Father, pulls back from the Son, allows this event to happen, Jesus dies, and then the Father sort of says, I can't live without you i can't live without you and the father's response is to bring him back in a new way that's eternal all that's just a little bit of a model and i know that sounds really heretical because how could god the father be ashamed of the son you ever been ashamed of your kids I thought I was once, and I realized I wasn't. This was an interesting thing. One time, my son did something that was really naughty, and I mean really, really naughty, and he did it to the wrong person. Let me tell you, the, the person who was like trying to blackmail me and came by and said to me something like, oh, you know, I would really hate for this to get out because I know it would be really embarrassing for your church community. I, and I had this moment of, I'm going to call this revelation, Or I said, there is nothing my son can do to embarrass me. I'm not embarrassed of my son at all. I'm disappointed, but I'm not embarrassed. And my church won't be embarrassed either. So get off my lawn. It was this really helpful parenting moment. Um, I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, again, uh, and then five minutes later, I went back to being a junk parent. But <laughs> for that five minutes, I was super good, you know? And um, and obviously, God is probably like that. But I think it's helpful to think about, hey, when we think about these events where Jesus says, I, I mean, I feel abandoned. What's that like in the Trinity? You know, what's that like? And, and uh, you know, it, it forces me to think, that, that when we think about the trinity you know and particularly about the incarnation i mean i've felt abandoned by people who didn't actually abandon me do you, do you know what i'm saying i've felt isolated from people who had no intention of isolating me that that ever happened by the way i've done that in my marriage quite a bit <laughs> right we've We've felt isolated by the other person, even though we weren't. So I wonder if the Trinity gets to enjoy that fact of life. Because I think it's a fact of life. Um, I don't know if you have any response to that. I mean, I don't know if that sounds too icky or weird. Yeah, yeah. While just being playful in definition, uh, I I, I would imagine, think about shame as a feeling of failure in yourself. Okay? So Jesus spends three years trying to expand understanding about where God is and who God is, and he ends up on a cross. Did he feel like a failure? Feeling of failure in the self, that's the definition of shame. Did Jesus feel like he failed? Because of himself. I don't know the answer, right? What I want to say is, it doesn't have to be the right answer for us to think about it, though. To think within the model of what this is doing. I'm not trying to make a doctrine here for the church. I'm not. I, I'm trying to play with the doctrine to see if we can get more meaning and insight out of it. Because he got, and, and human beings are never hung, they're always hanged. I learned that in the eighth grade. I don't know if that's right, but but I think it's right <laughs> in English, because he was hanged upon a cross. I don't know if he was ashamed or not, Kathy. I don't know the answer to that. I don't. But I think it's fun to pretend. The reason I think it's fun to pretend is I don't just have guilt feelings. I have shame feelings. Some of y'all are shameless, <laughs> which is not a good thing culturally, is it, right? Uh, it's not a good thing. Uh, and some people are guiltless. They're guiltless. Do you know what we call those people? Sociopaths. I no, I mean it. That's what we call those people who have no shame or guilt sensibility at all. They're called sociopaths. But I wonder if if God the Father, again, felt like, oh my God, like my son is dying on a cross. Maybe I did something wrong. Or the Holy Spirit. I, I mean, I don't know. And of course, this is this really important question. Does God even have feelings? Some people say, well, yeah, because the Bible says God gets angry. But we wrote the Bible. God didn't write it. I mean, it's just important, right? Yeah. Well, I think... Nicaea, Council of Toledo, Council of Chalcedon all say Jesus being in a body didn't change anything. The circles have to always be, they can never change. Like There's eternal nature of God to be these three circles that overlap in the middle called the Godhead. You, you know, of course, it does. And again, the question is whether or not there was real separateness or there was felt separation. You ever felt separate from God? Oh, I did yesterday, <laughs> by the way. This morning is so far so good. But I have felt separate from God a bunch. My theology tells me, though, there is nowhere I can go where God is not. Otherwise, God's not omnipresent. So separation is either real and God's not everywhere all the time, or separation is a real experience and a false reality. I know that's heady stuff, but I think it's critical, because again, if you want to add to your summer reading list the great divorce, right, hell is not separation from God. It's felt separation from God. Man, wouldn't it be amazing if even God felt separated from God? Jeez, there'd be hope for me. <laughs> That's why I'm pushing on it, right? Playfully. But if even God has feelings of loneliness and isolation... Within God's own self. Because I have those feelings. I mean, I just have those feelings all the time. You know? doesn't mean I trust them. Often I choose to trust those feelings. <laughs> I don't always. I know better. But I have them. I have them. I think so. Again, it's incomprehensible, so, so why not play with it? Knowing that we'll never get it right, that's fine, but let's just play with it a little bit, you know? Yeah, and particularly, and this is what I talked about in the paper, right? Um, I mean, do you know what Jesus was probably called by all of his friends and village growing up? used to be a bad word. I don't know if it is anymore. Uh, They probably called him the bastard kid. Because that's what he was. Born out of wedlock. What child who grows up being called that would not have a sense of shame? Do you know what I mean? Like there's something wrong with me because everybody's telling me there is. I actually decided very recently, like about a year ago, um, because I grew up with a very strong sense of religious shame. There's something wrong with you. It's sin, an original sin, and pray the sinner's prayer and God will fix it. You know? I I think that's why that form of religion is so compelling. Because I don't know anyone who hasn't felt like there's something wrong with them, who has not felt like there's something wrong with me. Maybe you don't feel like that anymore, but the, there's something bad about me. People don't want to be with me, or I'm blah, 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 you know, this sort of feeling. And, and see, religiously, what happens is, that's right. <laughs> there is something wrong with you. That's what happens in, in, in fundamentalist Christianity. There is something wrong with you, and God will fix it for you. The problem is, I didn't never believe God really fixed it. <laughs> Because when there's something wrong with you, you pray that prayer and you're fixed and you don't feel different, then I don't even, maybe I didn't mean it when I prayed it. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about here? It's super circular because how do you know God fixed it if you don't feel any different? Welcome to the Episcopal Church where we don't worry about that. <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, the Muslim faith? Oh, yeah, but Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a human being. God showed the prophet heaven, and he went back and died a human death. Done. And keep in mind, the prophet had performed one miracle only one miracle his whole life. Do you know what it was? The only miracle the prophet performed was to recite the Quran. He didn't raise anybody from the dead, he in healing sick people. All he did was recite. He was illiterate, you know. The prophet was illiterate. And yet... He ex- and I've had friends who are total secular people who have learned Arabic. They did Arabic studies degrees, and they said, oh, it's fine, right? The Quran is fine verse. I mean, it's, it's, this, it's like the William Tyndale Bible, not the King James Bible. That's, that used the William Tyndale language. You know, William Tyndale was before King James. Yea, that I walked to the valley of the shadow of death. That still becomes really important because it's just fine English, <laughs> you know, like kind of at its best. The Quran's like that. And it wasn't the prophet's idea. Uh, The archangel Jibreel, whom we call Gabriel, whispered it into his ear. So the prophet was simply a mouthpiece for God. And how interesting we're all called to be mouthpieces for god some at a micro level and some at a much bigger level right sometimes the mouthpiece for god says no i'm not getting out of my seat rosa parks (laughs) sometimes the mouthpiece says something a little bit more like martin luther king jr I think what I want to push on really hard, though, is, is again, if you were there for the sermon, I don't want to over-push it, is that I have this failure of imagination that thinks that the Trinity, I mean, I've thought this most of my life, they're just so similar, you know. Like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are so similar, and that doesn't have to be the case. I mean they could be radically different entities. In fact, it'd probably be better if they are, you know, it just would be better. Because three people that are real similar getting along is ordinary, don't you think? But church is about extraordinary stuff, right? I do ordinary stuff in my house, (laughs) but we're supposed to do extraordinary stuff, which is like people with irreconcilable differences being reconciled. And that is, it doesn't mean their differences are reconciled, it means they are a really interesting idea. I don't really know how it works. Which means it's probably right. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of my that's kind of my criterion for judgment, right? If I don't know how to do it because it's that good, then it's probably right. So what's irreconcilable? You know, musical genres political signs on your car and in your yard. I don't know, probably worse stuff than that, right? Like like politics and fashion sense and what food you like, what you do in your free, free time, I don't know. Those things can easily be irreconcilable. And what if, what if God is irreconcilably different? becomes this like really interesting thing to try to imagine because again like I, i said this in the sermon there's this book called the shack has anybody read the shack it's written by an evangelical christian that's the interesting thing right and what he says is that that god shows up in different forms to stretch our understanding and the forms that god shows up in the shack right are sort of palestinian jewish guy like that's jesus a big black woman like southern black woman and thin asian lady Because that's what the author needed. But we might need big burly man or (laughs) steampunk. I mean, somebody with gel in their mohawk coming into points with black leather and piercings. Oh, God could never do that. Why not? It's just a choice in how we present ourselves. I mean, what if God's really artistic? You know those art people? <laughs> I love what they make. I don't think I could do it. You know, I just I just I'm not an art person. I'm not. But what if one of the persons of the Trinity is an art person? I don't mean like Monet. I mean like Jackson Pollock. That's not art. That's just paint thrown on a canvas. What if what if one personality of God does that? You know? What if one personality of God is a figure skater? I mean like an ice skater. (laughs) That would be hard for me to accept. What would be hard for you? What would be hard for you? And then could you imagine God being like that? I mean, I think that's the opportunity. Particularly if you could imagine God the Father having that hard thing for you and God the Son having that easy thing for you and then being unified. at the risk of sounding really heretical and i'm i'm going to but remember I, this is just a stretch and i and this is stretching me right what if god the holy spirit is transgender well mike how could you say such a thing cuz it'd be hard that's why and what if what if god the son is completely against transgender identity and they're unified in their difference how could that be mike isn't that what the world needs not that we have the same opinion but that our opinions don't divide our unity i don't know how it works i don't know that's why i referenced that book that we're going to talk about next week where he says the difference is all versus judgment That seems right to me because You know I can't think of any way That judgment is going to make that Reconciliation happen I'm not saying God's like that I'm saying Our imagination exists I think So that God Can be bigger than we settle for Which means we can be Bigger than we settle for Any other thoughts? Well, thanks for playing. I mean, nobody left the room or threw tomatoes at me, probably because you didn't have any. But remember, the purpose, I think, is to stretch our thinking because thinking should be safe, right? Thinking should be safe. And the question is, good thinking leads us to be better people, and bad thinking leads us to take fewer risks and accept and love In smaller ways. Thanks for thinking big. Uh, See you next week. We'll talk about introduction and chapters one, two, and three, embarking uh, to the choir.